Amen. It's a good thing I love working in chaos. <laughs> happy, happy, fun chaos. Okay. Switching gears sort of drastically here. Two Sundays ago, I preached on Psalm 23. And in the weeks that followed, the phrase, the valley of the shadow of death, has been very, very real, all too real. Last week and this, I have provided pastoral care for families for three funerals. Two were for people who had lived long and happy lives and left behind children and grandchildren to mourn them. One was for a woman my age who left behind her parents and her grandmother. Also this past week, I spoke with a teacher friend of mine who works at Fairfield Prep. That community is reeling in agony over the loss of a 17-year-old junior who was stabbed to death. Both he and the person who killed him, their lives, one over and one drastically changed for the worse. We also continue as a community to process racist hatred that prompted the massacre in Buffalo and the loss of lives there and the shooting at a church in Southern California. Also in that time, we have passed the mark of losing one million Americans to COVID-19 and untold more around the globe. That phrase has echoed the valley of the shadow of death. And I keep returning to that psalm for the words of comfort that God's presence is still with us. Sometimes there is just no making sense of this. There's no way to understand it, and we don't have the right words. Our funeral liturgy says our words flutter about like frightened birds. We're at a loss for what to do and what to say. Funerals are a time to acknowledge all the pain and the sadness of the loss and also to try to lift up our hearts with joy and thanksgiving for the lives that people have lived, for all the gifts God has given us, and we turn to the Bible passages, which are full of many, many, many different images of heaven. We lean on the promises of the afterlife. So while feeling like we were walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the funeral passages just so happened to come up in the lectionary. So we had Psalm 23 two weeks ago, which we always recite in unison at funerals here. Poor baby. I hope you're okay, Skylar. My, my uh, child is turning teenager this week, and she would hear that and say mood. She captured the mood of the moment. I promise I'm going to uplift this mood in a moment. So we turn to the Bible passages for hope and comfort. Some of the images are of a great banquet feast where there's a long table stretched out and room for everyone. Maybe that is what heaven is like. Maybe heaven is like... The passage, in my father's house are many rooms or many dwelling places. If it were not so, what I have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. 
And this week we're going to also read Revelation, which has another description of heaven. But one of the things that we do at funerals, and as we prepare for them especially, gets a little bit silly. I think sometimes people get into a goofy mode when they imagine what heaven is like for that person. And it's like a choose-your-own-adventure story, right? So grandpa's up there golfing or enjoying his favorite cocktail or dancing with grandma or grandma is up there driving in her restored favorite convertible and that was just shiny and waiting for her in heaven. Or that favorite pet who you've been missing since childhood is waiting to lead you over the rainbow bridge into heaven. And it's like we all get to imagine our own perfectly curated heaven. And some people say, well, if it's not like that, I don't want to go. If there isn't X in heaven, it won't be heaven for me and I won't be going there. So I think this is a really valid and wonderful way to process grief. But I also think that I want to read these passages in a way that's not as funerary, that's not as much thinking about them in terms of last things. And I'll return to that idea in a minute. So let's listen again to this passage from Revelation. The writer tells us his name is John. So this is a vision which John receives and John shares with us. He writes, and in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the angels are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the Israelites on the east three gates, on the north three gates, and the author goes on and on describing this perfectly laid out symmetrical city, all lavishly created out of the finest, precious gemstones and metals. The city lies four square, and the angel is measuring this with with his rod, 1,500 miles. And he goes on and on. It's built of jasper and pure gold as clear as glass. Every jewel, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald. All the 12 gates are pearls. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. The glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And it goes on, just like the hymn we were singing. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. Shall we gather at that river? Shall we gather there and sing with the saints? That river flows through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life. So this is a recreated Eden, no longer a garden, but a golden city. The tree will give fruit in every season, 12 months a year, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They will need no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
So if this is a choose-your-own-adventure story, I feel like so often I begin preaching by telling you how much I love the passage because I want you to love it too, and I feel like that's sort of a way in. I'll tell you right now, if this is a choose-your-own-heaven, I don't pick this one. No? Is anyone else with me? I love a well-placed dimmer switch. I love sunset. I love the restorative rest of the quiet of night. I think because I operate in happy chaos so much of the time, I love the peace. I love music, but the music sounds best when you've had quiet before and quiet after. Constant singing by the saints, constant blaring sunlight is not my idea of heaven. I would pick a different kind of heaven. I think I would much prefer to be the lamb lying in the green pastures beside the still waters than a river of silver, that silver spray. If the river is silver, I don't know that it's potable. And I just, it makes me think sort of of when I was a little girl, we weren't allowed to watch very much TV, but we did have movie night occasionally. And my mother collected all of the Disney classics. So we watched Sleeping Beauty far too many times. And that scene where the three good fairies, Flora, Fauna, and Merryweather, have a secret to tell, so they take their wands and they make themselves tiny and fly through the keyhole of a jewel box, and they have their meeting in there. That's what this heaven sounds like, is like a jewel box, just static and gleaming, unchanging. I just... I think I love nature too much to feel like that is what heaven is like. But there are things in this passage that I think are helpful for us. So I told you earlier, I don't want to think of these in funeral terms. I don't want to think about this as a heaven kind of a metaphor. I think so often we fall back into the story. This is a plane that is earth, and up here is a plane that is heaven, When my niece was little, she lived in a high-rise in Manhattan, and she was trying to unpack what heaven was, and she said, so heaven is one floor up from the sky. (laughs) That's how we think of it, that once you can't go up here any further, God is on this plane. And theologians don't fall asleep. This will be quick. Theologians call this eschatology, the study of the last things. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega and the end of all faith. The telos or the end is this return to complete unity, completion in God, heaven. But there is something called realized eschatology, which means that heaven breaks into earth. That these two planes are not static and removed from one another, that they're dynamic and that there is flow, that there is the going up. Next week, we will celebrate the ascension, Jesus going up into heaven. But the passages tell you, I go to prepare a place and I come and I take you to where I am. But Jesus in the Gospels is always looking around and saying, he doesn't talk about heaven. He talks about the kingdom of God. And he says, it's like this and it's like this. And look, it's in your midst. And look, it has come to you this day. Whenever Jesus sees that something heavenly is happening, that is just like the kingdom breaking into God's creation here. There's no fixed separation. Do any of you read the UCC Daily Devotional? It's quirky sometimes. It's hit or miss, like a choose-your-own-adventure novel. Some days it will speak to you, and some days you will trust that it's speaking to someone else in the congregation. 
But this past week, Matt Laney offered this. He said, Jesus rarely talked about the afterlife. It just wasn't a major aspect of his teaching. When he did broach the subject, the afterlife was determined by behavior, not belief. Facts. This might come as a surprise. Listening to some Christian leaders, we might conclude that Jesus talked about the afterlife nonstop, advocating people everywhere to accept him as personal Lord and Savior, a phrase that occurs exactly zero times in the Bible, thereby securing one's place in heaven over hell. This is not the kind of faith that we practice here, is it? He writes again, false. He says, Jesus rarely spoke about the afterlife because he was too busy preaching about salvation, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven as present realities. He says, I affirm the afterlife. It seems clear that Jesus did too. I also affirm the afterlife, but I think that we can focus on it too much to the detriment of how we understand life on earth. His ending prayer is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if this is not a funeral text, and maybe this one isn't either, from the Gospel of John in the 14th chapter, he says, Jesus is telling his friends, those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Do you hear? It's not just about us going up. It's about that love of God and Jesus coming to us. And it's in the keeping of the word. It's in what we were talking about with the children. It's in the ways we show one another love. That's the inbreaking of the kingdom into the here and now, into our everyday relationships, into everything we say and do. We will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. So this passage follows just after, in my father's house are many rooms. So it is confusing that we would think that there is the place prepared there, and that Jesus will come and take us to himself, and yet in the meantime, Jesus comes to us. So if we were to return to the context of Revelation, it's really not about one person's admittance into the afterlife. It's not like there's a golden key to this jewel box and you can either get in because you did the right things or you're out. That's really just religion as coercion and threat. And it just makes no sense to me. But I think what John was seeing and is inviting us to see, we have to put Revelation in context. And I had some help from this. Uh, those of you who attend Bible study 
David's Bible study from Wednesday mornings is going to continue next September. And those of you who go to that know when I, when I guest teach, I used to bring in some of these videos from the Bible Project. If there's anything you want uh, explained of any books of the Bible, you can search the Bible Project and look at these excellent videos which they have produced. So it really helped me remember Revelation and how... we can go back to the nations. So imagine this city that's being described and imagine the wars and the empires that would rise up and all of the ways that power-hungry nations could start to exert terror on all of the regions around them. This is why the city that has 12 gates, three on every side, and they're open all day long and there is no night. Cities used to have to fortify themselves, build walls around, and lock up the gates so that enemies wouldn't flood in at night while people were sleeping. Imagine the terror that if your city weren't locked up at night, you would not be safe. People have ways of making hell on earth for one another. And we see it all the time. And what Revelation is telling us is that God's city has everything that people would want to ransack and steal. Silver and gold and every kind of opulence. But it's beyond a point where we would wage war on one another. It's a time where we can leave our gates open. Like we've been preaching about vulnerability for weeks. This is a vulnerable city that has no reason to fear. This is the new Jerusalem, a jewel box heaven that is safe because it is governed by the Prince of Peace and it's governed by a law of love where there is enough for everybody. So even if I did want to sing this song, Frank wouldn't have let us. So just rest easy. But the song that kept getting stuck in my head while I was preparing the sermon was Heaven is a Place on Earth. And now it can be stuck in all of your heads too. You can go out. Hopefully, if it gets stuck in your head, sing Shall We Gather at the River instead. But actually, the best closing for this sermon and all of the questions we leave unanswered is our closing hymn for the healing of the nations. There are so many ways we need to bring heaven to earth, not only in our lives, but in the ways that we as people interact with everyone around us. There is healing in this city. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations when we live in God's ways. So it's not just about taking the best of earth and projecting it up onto some imaginary movie screen, imagining what heaven is like. It's about helping heaven to break in to our everyday human existence. Heaven is a place on earth when we share God's love with one another. Thanks be to God.